I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, macro data refiners. You've once again found yourself listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. So that means you must want to be here, right? I'm your host, Alan S. Severed is a deep dive, comprehensive rewatch podcast. Nothing is off limits from the first season of Severance. This is an episode by episode rewatch with tons of spoilers. It's best to watch all nine episodes of the first season of Severance before you start this podcast. After episode one established the premise over and over and over, here in episode two, things really start to take off. Mark plays hooky to meet Petey, Helly refines her first set of numbers, and we get clues from everywhere, including Irving's fingernails. So refiners, if you're ready, let's open the file called Half Loop. Just like good news about Hell, Half Loop was written by series creator Dan Erickson and staff writer Anna Oyoung Munch. It was directed by Ben Stiller. The release date on Apple TV Plus is February 18th of 2022. And yes, this is the same date as episode one. Both were dropped together because they really wanted to set that hook and reel new viewers in. Now, in the first episode, we met Helly R., who is a newly severed innie. We don't know anything about Helly's Audi. Our entire experience with Helly R. was limited to the perceptions of her innie. We have no perceptions from her Audi, which caused the somewhat confusing experience at the threshold door leading into the stairwell. We were allowed to meet the full Mark, both his innie and Audi, in episode one. We were even able to glean some of his backstory. Here as we start episode two, we get the briefest glimpse at Audi Heli. We also get a chance to experience the severance procedure from the beginning. We open this time before fade up hearing Heli's voice repeating the message we heard in episode one. I acknowledge that henceforth my access to my memories will be spatially dictated. I will be unable to access outside recollections whilst on Lumen's severed basement floor, nor retain work memories upon my ascent. And just in case you'd forgotten the finer points of the premise, we fade up on a shot of Milchek behind a small video camera. Helly finishes the now familiar speech. Come with me, please. We cut to a long shot of Milchek and the unsevered Helly walking along one of the open balconies of the Lumen atrium. Milchik seems to be almost omnipresent in the lives of the severed macro data refinement employees. Milchik appears so often and in so many places, there is a theory Milchik might be either a clone copied over and over and sharing a single consciousness, or Milchik is a Lumen brand humanoid robot with multiple identical units placed all over the Lumen building. These are interesting theories, but I'm pretty sure Milchik is an actual human and there's only one of him. He just happens to be a very motivated and productive employee who manages his time very well. Milchik is giving Unsevered Heli a rundown on the day's schedule. Her work personage will be waking up on the severed floor in a few hours. But the next time you yourself will be sentient will be this evening 
in the elevator back up. Helly is full of barely contained excitement. She seems pretty positive about this. Okay. <laughs> they pause on the balcony, looking reverently at something. We get a reverse angle revealing the enormous relief sculpture of the man's head we saw in episode one. We mentioned how this was maybe a nod to sci-fi pioneer Philip K. Dick. It's also been cited as a possible homage to groundbreaking psychiatrist Sigmund Freud. Sure, it could be both. Old white men with beards for 400, Alex. This is actually a profile of Lumen founder and cult-like demigod Keir Egan. Milchik pauses with reverence. I love seeing the sunrise on his face. As they continue walking, Milchik throws out a bit of Kier trivia. You know he used to drink three raw eggs and milk each morning. I've heard. <laughs> his favorite breakfast. Which would be the answer to question four in episode one. Question four. What is Mr. Egan's favorite breakfast? The unsevered heli knew this information easily. Severed heli? I don't, that one makes no sense. Was confused by the question. More proof of the impenetrable wall put in place by the severance chip. Now I'm also wondering if they do Keir Egan trivia night over at Pip's. Milchick and Helly turn down a side hall. They enter an unmarked door in a large white wall. Milchick acknowledges a man passing in a suit. Good morning, Lawrence. Good morning. So does Milchick know everyone at Lumen? Lawrence is uncredited, and there isn't a single person named Lawrence or Larry I could find anywhere in the cast or crew. I would like to start a Lawrence-based conspiracy theory about Severance. It will be revealed at the end of Season 4, Lawrence is behind everything. Returning to our regularly scheduled surgical procedure, we hear the beep of medical monitoring equipment fade in as Lawrence passes on by. We cut to close-ups of Helly's face, Milchik's face in a stylish black mask, and the side view of an unidentified bearded and masked third person who is preparing the patient. We seem to be in an operating room in the Lumen building. This is where the severance chip is inserted. A word of warning, refiners, this scene is gooey and squirmingly graphic. If you're wearing headphones, I recommend you mute the cranial drilling scene. The drill looked like a drill. It looks like a DeWalt or a Makita. I'd never seen one, but I was hoping a cranial drill might look a little more sophisticated than this. Nope. I found an electric cranial neurosurgery drill on eBay for $625. It looked basically like this guy's drill, although his is probably a Lumen brand cranial drill. This raises a big question in my mind. Should we be worried anyone can just buy a cranial drill on eBay? A cranial drill seems like it should be a background check kind of situation. The unidentified cranial drill operator picks up a Lumen brand scalpel and opens a small blister pack. On the top is the Lumen logo and a barcode. Under the UPC code it says Severance, and that's a registered trademark, Microchip Technology contains one individually packaged sterile severance chip. Under that is the positioning phrase. It's partially obscured, but it looks like it says, don't live to work, work to live. The severance chip appears to be about half an inch long. You can clearly see the red coil at one end. It's not as visible, but there's also blue at the other end. The chip fits neatly into a hollow needle. The needle fits perfectly into the hole made by the cranial drill. 
A second person, a surgically masked woman, is now inserting the chip. I'm kind of surprised they jammed this thing into the patient's brain freehand. According to the Orientation Handbook, this procedure is being handled by a world-class medical staff directed by a fluoroscopy monitor, which allows for precision placement of the chip. Three sizable vials of ketamine are visible on the surgical tray. Ketamine, also known by the street name Special K, is a tranquilizer. It's used primarily as it's being used here for local deadening of an area. It's great for small, limitedly invasive surgeries. Ketamine can be used as a general anesthetic, but it's not as common. Since heli goes out hard, they might be using Special K here as a general. I'm not sure if fluoroscopy is quite as advanced as it's shown here. This looks pretty amazing. We're seeing the inside of Heli's skull in 3D and real time as the chip is inserted. Once the chip is in place, it appears to set itself with barbs that pop out from the main body of the chip. I love a good Foley sound story, and there's a great story behind the sound of this effect. Sound designer Jacob Ribikoff told the story in an interview with the A Sound Effect website. They created a flick for when the butterfly flaps on the severance chip open. I'll play it for you here. Did you hear it? It's that tiny mechanical sound just before the beep. Ribikoff said as they built up the soundtrack with music and other ambient sounds from the room, he was protecting the flick in the mix because it was so cool. Foley artist Marco Constanzo said it was a funny sound to create. He said it was hard to even imagine what that might sound like. Costanzo said it had to be very small, but at the same time, it was so big and important. Milchik is snapping pictures with what looks to be an old film camera throughout the process. Helly apologizes, anticipating she might freak out on him a little. Milchik has no reservations. Don't worry. I'm very excited to meet you. He's excited to meet the any Helly is about to become. As Helly's eyes close, there's a 3D transition, and suddenly... We're in the stairwell. The stairwell scenes this time are on the other side of the door from the scenes we saw in episode one. What we're seeing now is what was happening out in the stairwell while Mark was waiting in the hall. Although we perceived Helly's innie as leaving and immediately returning through the door, she was actually pausing on the stairwell to talk to Milchik. There's no way her innie would remember these conversations. This is also why Mark could only go as far as the hallway. You remember he said he wasn't allowed to watch Heli leave. This explains why they didn't want Mark to even get a glimpse of Audi Heli talking to Milchik in the stairwell. We find Audi Heli is a little freaked. Oh, what's happening? Milchik says it's great to see her. Your orientation has been so much fun. This isn't exactly the truth. Her orientation has certainly been a challenge, but fun? Probably not. He's wanting to put Audi Heli at ease. She doesn't have to know what a handful any Heli has been. Audi Heli doesn't know where she is. Milchek explains. Sometimes when a new hire is adjusting to a severed space, we help by bringing them here to the stairwell to experience the transition viscerally. Notice he says adjusting to a severed space. This might indicate the severed floor is not the only place where severed employees are working. 
The word visceral also caught my attention. It's the same word used by Denise at Rickon's No Dinner Dinner Party. I just don't grasp the visceral element. What does it feel like? Could Denise have more involvement with the severance process than she's letting on? Addy Helly realizes she must be trying to leave. Milchik fibs a bit about it. No, no. It's all part of the process. If you want to spin around and head back in, that should be that. He opens the stairwell door so she can return to the severed floor. We get the same sensation of instantly returning we had on the other side of the door in the last episode. Helly seems to come right through the door back onto the stairwell just as she was exiting. This is the Audi's perception. Milchik greets her again. Hey there. Audi Helly realizes her innie must be causing some trouble. She wants to get back in there. Milchek opens the door and tells her, Want to give it another shot? Maybe with a little oomph? Helly jogs through the door for her return to the severed floor. Milchik pulls out either a walkie-talkie or a cell phone. His report to Audi Helly was so positive and such a lie. He sounds more truthful with whoever he's reporting to now. It's probably Cobell. Hi. I'm at the stairwell. It's going fair. He is cut off as Helly comes flying through the door again. She lands on the floor behind Milchik in a very Lucy kind of slapstick move. You remember in episode one, her exit from the severed floor got more and more athletic as she tried to leave. I don't want to be in there, do I? You're learning that you do. Milchik says she's an inquisitive one. It is possible any Helly is pushing back so forcefully because of her upbringing. We know Helly is an Egan. We can imagine she's led a life of privilege. We can assume she's rarely ever had anyone tell her no, and she's most likely always been allowed to do pretty much whatever she wants. Although severance filters out memories of your Audi self, it is possible something like a privileged attitude is one of those institutional memories that makes it through. Any Helly is certainly proving to be a headstrong handful. Knowing who Helly turns out to be, we can understand Milchik's reverence for her. Hey, when we heard you were coming here, it was like a miracle. It's amazing what you're doing. He seems sincerely blown away she's there as a part of the severance program. I didn't really catch this bigger meaning to his words my first time through. Once I understood Helly's position with Lumen, I got Milchik's fascination with her. It's not clear how completely voluntary Audi Helly's participation is in the severance program. CEO Daddy Jame seems to have a very vested interest in her success. He may have pushed her into getting severed. It's also possible Audi Helly is on board as someone who supports Dad's work. She realizes how well-known she is around the company, and she's most likely in line to be the next CEO. Understanding the severance program from the inside out and garnering positive press about the program might be very valuable to Audi Heli. Heli pushes through the stairwell door one more time. We get another 3D transition as her eyes flutter. This time we hear the ding of the elevator bell. This is the next perceived memory of Audi Heli. She was on the stairwell, passed through the barrier, and now the elevator doors are opening. It's the end of the day. Helly staggers a bit as the elevator comes to a stop. We hear the voice of Milchek. Wow, this guy does get around. Hey, old timer. 
One day down. We cut to Heli's POV. Milchik is smiling and holding a bouquet of white flowers. This is the same bouquet we saw in Heli's hands at the end of episode one as Mark almost hit her with his car. Hey! Sorry. Maybe keep your eyes on the icy road. It wasn't clear then where exactly she'd come up with a bouquet. The Severance writing, directing, and production crew does not seem to miss details. You do have to let them tell the story at their own pace. You saw flowers, we'll get to an explanation for the flowers, but you might have to wait until the next episode. Also, I would like to quickly address a theory about the line Heli uses here. There is a thought, keep your eyes on the icy road, was the last thing Gemma Scout said to Mark just before he hit the tree and killed her. We have no way of knowing if this is true or why Heli would know this line or why Mark doesn't react when he hears it. But hey, it's a theory. We cut from a smiling milkshake to black and the start of the Severance theme music. The full Severance theme launches us into the Severance opening credit sequence for the very first time. The pilot only had a title screen. This time we get a full open with some pretty trippy CGI animation. So trippy, it won the Primetime Emmy for Best Opening Credit Sequence in 2022. It was created by a Berlin-based 3D graphic artist and producer named Oliver Lada. His online moniker is Extraweg. Ben Stiller found him through his Instagram posts. Let this be a lesson, content creators. Get your stuff out there. It might land you a job that will win you a Primetime Emmy. Lada does a lot with bodies, people in weird places, like coffee cups. The biggest thing he got from the production company was a 3D scan of Adam Scott and about 50 pages of script from the start of the season, so no spoilers in this sequence. Many of the images and sequence we're seeing were drawn from other work Lotta has done. Lotta said the entire sequence took him a full year to produce, but some of that time was due to stops and starts caused by the pandemic. He was working from Theodore Shapiro's music score, which he said helped define the flow and timing of the sequence. There were notes from Ben, and he accessed the Severance production deck so he could match the style. Otherwise, he was on his own. Lotta says the images are supposed to be conversation starters, not answers. Let's go through the sequence now, since it's new, and even though it was the big Emmy winner, we'll probably be hitting the skip button for every episode after this one. We open on Mark with a face full of stubble wearing a tie. Only his chin and cheek are visible in the shadows. Lotta said the sequence is intended to roughly parallel Mark's workday. We cut to an overhead shot of a bed where Mark is laying awake in his tie and dress shirt, his innie wardrobe. Cut to Mark in his blue suit fighting with the trash bin in the middle of a field of snow. Irv's black ooze is coming from the can. Cut to the Lumen parking lot. Cars are buried in heavy snow and the aisle is snow covered. Mark in his innie suit is walking up and to the right. Audi Mark in his red pajamas walking down and to the left. Red PJ's Mark is holding a balloon made up of about a half dozen innie marks. It's a freaky looking thing bobbing along behind him. He's holding one leg and the rest of them are arrayed like a helium balloon being pulled by a kid. This memorable image was cribbed from another lot of work called Past. It illustrates how Mark can't completely leave his workday behind. Cut to a hallway filled with elevator doors and dozens of any marks crossing each other. 
One Audi Mark in his red PJs is mixed in with the group. The Innie seems to be taking over the consciousness. Innie and Audi Mark move around the space. Audi Mark falls into one of the overstuffed wellness chairs, and it immediately melts to become more of Herb's black goo, which we do get a glimpse of for the first time in this episode. Pan down to Audi Mark in a cubicle. A dripping blob of Irv's black sludge is about to fall on him. Then a huge wave of the arms and legs from hundreds of any Marks overwhelms the Mark in his red PJs. The shot pulls out and we see this wave is in a coffee cup, which spills over, rolling the whole mess of any Marks out onto a desk. This sequence echoes another lot of work called Human Paste, where human bodies flop out of tubes. Red PJ's Audi Mark is able to escape the wave of innies. He jumps off the desktop and lands in the open skull of his innie. This is the graphic used in so many show promos. Adam Scott open head. Lada didn't create this when it was provided to him. This iconic image lasts for just a moment because we're not done. The camera pulls out in a swirl to reveal multiple workplace pinwheel clusters like the one we find in MDR. A giant needle, like the one that delivered the severance chip, comes down into the cubicle and starts to pick up red PJ Mark's cluster and vacuum it into the needle. We go up into the barrel of the needle with Mark swirling around. Only one is red PJ Mark. The rest are any Marks that morph into Irv's black goo and swirl onto the face of Audi Mark. He's being drowned by his any. We swirl out of the black goo to find it's the same sludge that was oozing out of the trash bin at the beginning of the sequence. Audi Mark is fighting with a river of black sludge, which is becoming Any Mark. Quick cut to the down angle view of the bed where we started. Any Mark in his suit is still laying there. Is this all a half waking dream, or are we now at the end of the day just before falling asleep? Red PJ Mark is flung onto the bed next to Any Mark in his suit. The two are in the shadows, laying on their backs next to each other as the music builds. We suddenly get the lumen sound. This leads to the stuttered Fritz cut, where the two versions of Mark seem to merge into one another on the bed. We only see it for a moment, but it looks like we're left with any Mark in his suit. As I said, pretty trippy. The overarching theme of the open seems to be the any personality will eventually take over, drowning out the Audi persona. Coming out of the credit sequence, we are in a darkened room. No Samba music through the hallways with Mark this morning. Instead, we're already waiting inside Macro Data Refining. Mark, the new department chief, enters and flips on the lights. He strides confidently across the floor. On the wall is a metal message center containing a blue paper. The headline says, Senior Refiner Morning Checklist. With great power comes great responsibility. I hope Mark got a raise as chief because he's got a whole new list of morning duties. The jazzy tune we're hearing as Mark starts his duties is a version of Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho by jazz guitarist Grant Green. It was recorded in December of 1962 and released on Green's 63 album, Feelin' the Spirit. The first item on Mark's list refill the soap dispenser in the bathroom. Since severed employees are encouraged to wash their hands at least 10 times a day, this tracks. Item two, sweep the floor using the carpet sweeper. It doesn't sound like there's a severed janitorial staff tasked with coming down and cleaning up after these guys. They're on their own, and that's a lot of carpet. 
Mark also has to wipe down the desk surfaces in each cubicle and dust the Lumen Compliance Handbook and appendices. Item 5 is return the vending machine tokens to the jar. We haven't been to the vending machines yet. We'll be making a trip there today. Item 6 on the Chief's checklist, review employee lunches. Item 7, check refrigerator temperature. Item 8 is an odd one, but easy to do. Acknowledge Keir Egan portrait, and in parentheses it says, either verbally or silently. Next up, inspect keyboards for weak keys. Finally, do a self-assessment. Can I lead today? Mark confidently begins his duties. He opens a cabinet to reveal several stacked cans of Rwandan dark roast coffee. Keeping severed employees awake seems to be a big concern. A little dark roast Rwandan coffee will hopefully go a long way towards keeping the folks awake and focused. I have a theory about this attention to dozing employees. I'm going to go into more detail about it once Irv is catching a nap. No surprise, the soap dispenser in the bathroom is empty. They seem to take the washing hands ten times a day thing pretty seriously. Would you think Lumen would make an unpowered carpet sweeper? Well, they sure do. Mark pulls it out, blue of course, with the water droplet logo. He starts to sweep the huge expanse of green carpet. There's an effect showing multiple marks sweeping the floor in a time jump montage. There's a close-up of a small inset bookshelf in the wall. This is the shelf that holds the Lumen Compliance Handbook. The handbook itself is the large book on the bottom. The three smaller but still very thick volumes above are Appendices 1, 2, and 3. All four volumes are smartly hardbound in green and gold. Mark works them over with a feather duster. Same with the computer screens. Mark polishes his caricature lucite block and places it back on the lighted pedestal. There's a shot of Mark's desk showing the lighted block sitting next to the office picture. It's the old picture, the one still showing the guy we now know as Petey standing to the far left. He has a hand on Mark's shoulder and Mark is beaming. Mark pauses to pick up the picture and dust it off. The music changes, the jazzy tune is gone. Mark pauses looking distraught. He studies the picture. His features are clouding. Suddenly, he collects all of the group pictures from each desk in the cluster. This seems impetuous, like he's doing something wrong. Mark throws a guilty look over his shoulder as he heads into the storeroom. He's returning the cleaning supplies, but he's also taking the collected pictures into the storeroom with him. We cut to a POV shot from up on a high shelf. Mark steps up on something and puts the pictures far to the back of the top shelf of the storeroom. Hallie walks in behind Mark as he's still on the stool. Hey. Hey. Mark turns. He's standing in the corner with stacks of red, green, and blue paper reams on either side of him. Hallie thinks it's a new day, but she's not positive. She asks if it's tomorrow now. Mark tells her it's actually Monday. A weekend just happened. Yeah. I don't even feel like I left. Yeah, that's how nights and weekends feel here. This is the drudgery of the any. When the elevator closes, perception stops. 
Perception resumes as the elevator is opening for a new day. There is no break for the Annie. It's one continuous workday punctuated by trips to the elevator. Any Mark is really trying to put a happy face on this horrific situation. He says since he doesn't get to experience sleep, he likes to focus on what he knows are the effects of sleep. You may feel rejuvenated or happy, less tense in the shoulders, spry. Ellie checks her watch. It's 9.05. Yeah, they stagger the entries, too, so we don't meet on the outside. It's important, apparently. Mark picks up three colored reams of paper. Mark's stack is blue on top, green in the middle, red on the bottom. Helly is just the opposite with her color scheme today. Red hair over green sweater and blue skirt. Since Mark said Audis aren't supposed to meet on the outside, Helly figures they must not be friends. Guess not. There's a cut to a close-up of the Macro Data Refiner's orientation handbook. If you listen to episode one of the podcast, you should already have your own copy downloaded. If not, do go back and check out episode one of the podcast. Heli is flipping through the handbook. The little cartoon character is Sevi, the animated severance chip. He looks a lot like Clippy, the animated paperclip who used to be the default virtual assistant in Microsoft products like Word. As Heli flips, Dylan is bragging about his prowess when it comes to data refining and specifically how he's doing with his current file, Tumwater. I've got it 96% sorted, which means I've earned four of the five tier incentives, including the erasers and the finger traps that you see displayed here. Dylan is feeling pretty confident he's going to hit 100% with his file. 100% is tier five. That gets you a caricature portrait. Dylan opens the top drawer of his desk. We get a close-up shot of the contents. You'll note I've accrued an embarrassment of wealth in that regard. Wow. Correct. Dylan reveals more pen and ink caricatures of himself in addition to the ones on the cubicle walls. There's Dylan on a Lumen surfboard. Dylan possibly on gymnastic rings wearing tiny shorts. These are things Dylan has never done, or if he has, his any doesn't know it. Seeing himself in these caricatures seems to be somehow empowering or at least reassuring to any Dylan. Each one of these... Finish file in the can. Helly asks if the caricature is the top prize. Oh, no, it most certainly is not. Percentage-wise, yes, but if we hit our numbers by quarter's end, one of us gets named refiner of the quarter, and that shit gets you a waffle party. We see Helly flip to the page in the handbook where the various award levels are listed. The book Helly is referencing is laid out in landscape mode. The version of the handbook you can download from Apple Books has a portrait layout. Otherwise, it looks like all of the info is identical. Helly isn't sure she's heard Dylan correctly. I'm sorry, a waffle party? Dylan is so protective of the award, he interprets her confusion as ambition. Dylan tells her to chill on the waffle party with a phrase that's a new one on me. Okay, hazards on, eager lemur. I'm a deadlock for that this quarter, so uh, don't get your hopes up. Eager lemur? Hazards on? Being isolated on the severed floor with no knowledge of the outside world is bound to produce some new vocabulary. Helly glances over to Mark's desk. What about Mark's crystal head cube? It's not one of the items listed as a performance award. Actually, it's quite a bit nicer than any of the performance awards. Dylan sounds a little agitated about it. That's not a prize. That's just something they gave him. We hear Mark's voice. He's lying flat on his back under one of the desks in the cluster. He asks Helly to flip on the console at the desk where he's working. 
She reaches behind the monitor and flips a switch. As Mark stands up, there's a cut to the boot-up screen on the computer. The first line says Lumen OS. So Lumen isn't relying on Microsoft or Apple to run their computers. They've created their own operating system to do whatever it is they're doing here on the severed floor. Many of the boot-up commands look a lot like the same mumbo-jumbo MS-DOS would throw up on the screen before you got into Windows. The Lumen logo with the oval map assembles on the screen at what looks like a DOS caret prompt. Mark types the word Sienna, S-I-E-N-A. The Rolodex graphic pops on the screen and flips through all of the cards until it gets to the S's. There's a cut to a long shot of the cubicle cluster. One of the cubicle walls lowers to reveal Irving sitting at his workstation. Something is out of place. You can't get anything by Irv. Mark, sorry to interrupt. I know you're training Helly. I just noticed you removed the group photos from the desk. Mark wants to seem unfazed, but he might be a bit irritated Irv noticed his lapse in protocol. Mark's demeanor made it pretty obvious what he was doing was wrong. He tries to brush it off matter-of-factly. We're going to take the new ones at Helly's party today. Day two of being severed must mean party time. Irv does not appear to be satisfied by this answer. He pulls the cubicle wall back up so he is no longer seeing Mark. We get the feeling this may not be the last word on this topic. Mark and Helly are sitting next to each other in front of the newly booted workstation. Mark's opened the Sienna file and he's introducing Helly to it. The open area in the center of the screen is a moving grid of single-digit numbers. As the mouse pointer rolls across this field of numbers, they seem to grow and undulate. The pointer makes the field of numbers distort as it rolls over them. Mark explains about the five buckets. This is information we covered last episode, and it's also in the Refiner's Handbook. As Mark and Helly are working, the cubicle wall comes down again. This picture thing has worked its way into Irving's craw, and he's not letting it go. I do think the old photos are supposed to stay on the desk until the new ones come in. Irving has a pretty smug expression. He's feeling good about how right he is on this one. Irv and Mark lock eyes for a few moments. Without a word, the panel goes back up, and Irv disappears. Helly is trying to get a handle on what she's supposed to be doing with the numbers. The data comes fully encoded from upstairs, as Mark says, so they can't know what the numbers mean. Instead, well, here, let's listen to Mark explain, because it's a little weird. Each category of numbers presents in such an order as to elicit an emotional response in the refiner. This is not your average data input gig. Mark continues, and it gets weirder. So, uh, cat one numbers, for example feel a certain way on site. They'll be sort of disconcerting, scary. Helly thinks this is absurd. My job is to scroll through this spreadsheet and look for numbers that are scary. Dylan is eavesdropping. He agrees it sounds dumb. I mean, Mark said it dumb. Helly is taking this idea to its absurd extremes. Are the numbers bloody? Do they chant? Doesn't make sense till you see it, and it takes a while to see. Severed personnel here in MDR are told they have a special gift. Being able to sense these different emotional responses in the numbers might be unique to certain people. Irving's back. He was on a mission. No surprise, he's still working on proving he's right about that picture. Hey, Mark, I just printed out the passage of the handbook on changing out group photos. Just might be good to peruse when you're between things. Irv is a stickler for the rules. Also, notice how he referred to the rule from the handbook as a passage. 
The handbook and its appendices is truly the Bible of the Kier Egan cult. It's pretty amazing to think it even covers something as mundane and specific as when to change out a group picture, but it must. Hallie wants to know about quitting. It's only her second day, but she's decided she just might hate this. Mark catches Dylan's eye, and they exchange a glance. They both know how impossible it is to quit. Mark says a severed worker can submit a request to their outside self to resign. Dylan, ever the realist, chimes in. And good luck getting that approved. Mark admits quitting requests do get rejected quite frequently. He also touches on the subject of what quitting would mean for any heli. Since this perceptual version of you only exists at Lumen, and quitting would effectively end your life, I mean, in so much as you've come to know it. Quitting, not going back to the severed floor, means the death of the innie. Peg Kincaid mentioned it in the Lexington letter. This is one of the great moral conundrums of severed existence. The severed employee is quite possibly existing in a type of hell. They work continuously, without a break, never knowing if they've slept, what their Audi lives are like, or anything other than work. Getting them out of this existence should be a good thing, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, because they would be freed from the drudgery, but no, because freeing the any from continued any existence means they effectively die. Recombining the memories of the any with those of the Audi, like what Petey seems to have done, could allow the any to continue to survive with their memories and knowledge intact as a part of the whole person. Can this happen? That's a big question mark. Lumen says it's an irreversible procedure. Now, since Petey seems to be the only person on Earth with a defeated severance chip, the idea of recombining severed employees is probably still a long way off. Milchik is rolling a cart into the Macrodata office area. Dylan knows what it is. Hello, refiners. Ooh, sweet melon bar. Milchik has his simple two-shelf four-wheeled cafeteria cart with something on the top shelf. It's nothing fancy, but it's being presented like it's an event. The prizes and parties on the severed floor all have a very simplistic feel, like the parties you'd find at a nursery school. The innies are easily entertained, and Lumen seems to spring for the bare minimum whenever they can get away with it. Milchik steps to Heli with smiles and positive reinforcement. I'm agog at how well I can tell you're already fitting in. The office feels whole. Okay, so the office is whole, even if the workers aren't. Agog is outside of the usual work vocabulary. This feels more like scripted content. It's about as awkward as Mark's write as rain comment during the initial interview. Now, I know you're sleepy, but I just bet it'll make you feel right as rain. You can sense tension whenever Milchik arrives. He wants to come across as everybody's buddy, but the refiner's response to Milchik tells us he can be cold and possibly even mean. Let's get this party started. We cut to the four MDR employees and Milchik sitting in chairs in a circle. Milchik has centered himself directly in front of the Kier Egan portrait. A red playground ball is being used as an icebreaker. The ball is rolled across the carpet from one refiner to the next. This is the same kind of get-to-know-each-other icebreaker game you'd find both at either an executive retreat or on the first day of nursery school. When they get the ball, the refiners are supposed to share something about themselves. What they share, of course, will only be information from the any perspective. 
Irv is the first one we see get the ball. My name is Irving, as you all know, and I've worked here for three years. And Irv Zinni thinks he's worked here for three years. This is an important bit of info. Audi Irv, like all the MDR employees, has a listing on LinkedIn. According to Irv's LinkedIn bio, he's been at Lumen for nine years. Why the discrepancy? We'll get into that in a little more depth after Irving has met Bert. For now, just tuck this bit of info away. Something about me is that I know all nine core Lumen principles. Melchick asks Irv which is his favorite. He answers like a five-year-old. All nine. Today, I think I'd say cheer. We've delved into the four tempers, but not the nine core principles of Lumen. In episode one, I mentioned there were nine principles, but I didn't name them. The principles are listed in the Refiner's Orientation Handbook. They are vision, verve, wit, Irv's favorite cheer, humility, benevolence, nimbleness, probity, and wiles. This list of principles reminds me of the Scout Law, where this is nine, the Scout Law is 12 words in a list, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. It's a bit freaky to find cheer in the Lumen List and cheerful in the Scout Law. As Scouts, we had to both memorize and define each of the 12 points of the law. Each time we advanced, we also had to tell how we use the points of the law in our daily lives. I'm betting severed floor workers are studying the principles in kind of the same way. Irv is proud he knows them. I was familiar with most of the core principle words, but probity and wiles required a lookup. Probity is the quality of having strong moral principles and being honest and decent. This seems like a very positive word and something to strive for. Wiles seems to be going the other way. Wiles are devious or cunning stratagems used to manipulate or persuade someone to do what you want them to do. It's kind of unnerving to realize wiles is a core principle of Lumen. After Irv proclaims cheer his favorite principle, he steps to the middle of the group and wraps his arms around the red ball. Milchik realizes Irv is going right into a trust fall, but this isn't a trust fall game. The trust fall is another one of those cliched executive retreat kinds of exercises. Normally, there's some preparation, even a countdown. Irv goes right to falling as Milchik oh, jumps oh. up to catch him. Uh, no trust fall today, Irv. Irv returns to his chair with a devious grin on his face. It's obvious he's going to roll the red ball to Helly. She realizes it and starts to say no, but it's too late. The ball rolls to her feet, and she grudgingly picks it up. Hello, I'm Helly. I've been at Lumen for like 10 hours total, and I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know anything about myself. She tosses the ball to Milchik. He tells her, sure, she knows things about herself, and throws the ball back. I really don't. Helly says she guesses she went home last night, but she's not sure. She doesn't know if she lives in a house or with a family. This prompts Dylan to chime in. I like to think my Audi lives on like a riverboat. We've been using the terms any and Audi already thanks to the Lexington letter. This is the first time Hallie's heard the word Audi. I'm sorry, Audis are... Mark points up and tells her it's just us on the outside. You saw yours yesterday in the video. This reminds Helly she'd like to say a few things to her Audi. Can I record something back? Herb snickers at this. Helly asks, if not a video, how about writing something to her? 
Milchik tells Heli communication between innies and outies is pretty curtailed. Mark and Milchik describe the elevator code detectors we discussed last time. Heli won't stop. She's trying to find a loophole, any way to get her message out. She hates everything about this severed life. After arguing for a few seconds, Milchik tells her she's not getting the game. He holds out his hands and has Heli toss him the ball. Guys, this is Heli. She's 30 years old, she's allergic to almonds, and has weak enamel. At 5'6", she's the fourth tallest person in your office, and her hair is what we call shoulder length. (laughs) He concludes by saying, after seeing her here with the MDR group, I say she most definitely has a family. Mark and Irv chime in with some awes. This is another business cliche, the business family. Sure, co-workers may be in a family-like gathering for a few hours each day, but that's about it. You don't go home with these people. They don't come over for family gatherings. You usually don't know personal things about them, like their birthdays or anniversaries or even their middle name. You are family in the most minimal way, but bosses like to promote the idea of a business family because it's a morale booster. Milchik rolls the ball to Mark. Mark Sinney has developed this gung-ho company persona, but it feels pretty fake. He says he's been with Lumen for about two years. And I absolutely love this game. Mark's joviality is forced. He's trying to sound like a team player. After all, he's the new department chief. Milchik catches him. Uh, nice try, pal, but you said that last time. Fair enough. Uh, um. The good-natured laughs, also very forced. Mark and Milchik eye each other. The mood of the room changes. Mark has to come up with another piece of information about himself. He suddenly gets very serious. He has a haunted look in his eyes, and he swallows hard. There's a long pause, then... I... Broke protocol this morning. He looks almost defiantly at Milchik. Milchik isn't sure where this is going, but decides to let it play out. He tilts his head to one side and continues to listen. Mark describes dusting the photos, the old ones, with Petey. Mark says he got sad, and it made him worry he wouldn't be able to run MDR the way Petey did. That tracks. I have similar worries. Leave it to Dylan. Mark knew moving the pictures to the storage closet was wrong, and he says so. Goody-goody Irv has to make sure he's covered his butt. I recall this. I objected. Milchik says he finds Mark's response to Petey's departure as sweet. He's curious why Mark would react like this about Petey, but not about someone like, say, Carol D., who was previously in Dylan's spot. Mark says the situations are very different. We knew Carol D. was leaving beforehand. I mean, how do you film the thank you? Petey was just gone with no warning. Mark Zinni has been contemplating Petey's possible fate, and he's going to some pretty dark places. I don't know if he's got some new job, or drunk on a beach, or dead. Milchik cuts Mark off at the mention of Petey possibly being dead. Mark bows his head. He knows he's pushing the limits of Milchik's patience. Like with a toddler, death is one of those big, upsetting topics adults try to avoid. There's a heavy silence. Milchik decides to address the topic of death. I think this is a good time to remind ourselves that things like deaths happen outside of here. Not here. Mark's head is still bowed. He's nodding, agreeing, but he knows he shouldn't have pushed back so hard. A life at Lumen is protected from such things. 
And I think a great potential response to that from all of you is gratitude. Mark looks up with a slight nod. He hasn't, but it almost looks like he's been crying. Melchick's comment raises a question. Just how is life protected at Lumen? There is a theory that Lumen may be working on reanimating the dead. More on that later. The mood of the room is very strained following Mark's outburst. Milchik tries to lighten things up with one of his disarming smiles. I also think that melon isn't getting any tastier. The refiners head for the melon bar. Milchik rolled in. The tune that begins is Dylan is choosing his melon, The Cat by Jimmy Smith and Lalo Schifrin. We watch the refiners as they enjoy their melon bar. Dylan takes a long time choosing his treats. Irv has selected a seat just in front of the Keir Egan portrait to enjoy his plate of melon. Don't look away, a clue is coming. Irv notices something black like dirt under his fingernails. He's as surprised as we are to find it. Is Irv a gardener on the outside? Well, not exactly. We will discover this is paint. Irv is a very serious painter. He only has one subject, but he paints it again and again. Irv's chosen image requires a lot of black paint. It's kind of surprising to see goody-goody Irv with dirty fingernails. The handwashing section of the orientation handbook specifically says to get rid of any grime or debris under your nails when you wash your hands. As the refiners wait in line, the long shot creates a great freeze frame where Helly is standing, waiting on Dylan. Her head blocks the Y in her name on the Hello Helly sign. The printed banner on the wall briefly reads, Hello Hell. If you aren't getting it, this place might be a bit like hell. Mark and Helly are at the melon bar together, and they seem to be... Flirting. Hey, sorry I derailed your game. I thought I already had, but then yeah, you made it way worse. <laughs> Mark chuckles. Helly asks him how he's going to find out if Petey is okay. And he, Mark has no idea. He just saw Petey at Pips last night. Mark sounds like he's backing down. Oh, I think Milchick was pretty clear. You're just done asking about your best friend because our babysitter told you to stop? Mark's reaction is a bit chilling. He says... Milchik is a nice man, but when he says something, it's best to listen. Because he can't always be nice like that. You can see the lump in the throat fear Mark has about Milchik. Helly isn't picking up on the possible threat posed by an unhappy Milchik. A smiling Milchik addresses the room. Okay, refiners, let's get this new group photo before the melon bloat sets in. <laughs> Mark's laughter is forced and so sycophantic. The refiners step to an open expanse of wall, which isn't hard to find. Mark and Irv both put on their suit coats. As Milchik lines up the camera for a picture, much like the one we saw with Petey, let's talk for a minute about this camera. We've seen Milchik with it now in several scenes. It's the one he was using in the operating room during Helly's procedure. Tremel Tillman said in a Vulture article, this is the real deal. He called it an antique, which makes me feel old. He said it does use real film and it does take actual pictures. He had to work with the props people to learn how to handle it, how to advance the film, how to use the viewfinder. He said if he didn't flick the film advance just right or he wouldn't catch the flash, they'd have to do the shot again. 
Milchik reminds them they will be looking at this picture every day. To hammer home his earlier point, Milchik picks something other than cheese for picture time. Say gratitude. 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 Helly looks agitated. This group response is a little more than she can take. Milchik is snapping away and advancing the film camera at a fast rate. Say cheer. Cheer. Helly breaks ranks and walks away. She just can't take this anymore. It's pretty cult-like and more than a little creepy. Helly, what are you doing? Oh, I I just think I'm not going to work here anymore. Sorry. Mark asks her what she means. She holds up a post-it with two words on it. I quit. She stalks off across the wide expanse of green carpet. Mark is in hot pursuit. I don't want to do the file sorting thing or the never seeing the sun thing or the disappearing friends thing. I just don't want we any of it. We told you there's code detectors. Do you know that? Have you tried? Because frankly, it sounds made up. Helly leaves the MDR room. Helly is striding quickly down the hall. Mark calls after her. She breaks into a run. The elevator seems much closer than the other morning when we took the whole walk with Mark. Helly jams her blue keycard in the elevator slot as Mark is calling in the distance. She steps inside, still carrying the post-it with I quit written on it. The code sensors don't seem to be all that made up. As soon as the doors close, the elevator is bathed in red light. Alarms go off. The doors to the elevator reception area slam shut, stopping Mark from getting to the elevator. The elevator doors are opening, but Helly is trying to force them closed. Someone we haven't met before enters the room outside the elevator. Mark calls through the door. Mr. Greener? The guy Mark called Greener puts his key in the elevator lock and the alarms stop. The shot cuts to Helly's point of view. This Grainer fellow is visibly unpleasant. Come on out. He's the guy Petey mentioned last night at Pips. What, think they're after you or something? Yeah. They being Grainer. Who's probably out here right now. Grainer, okay. Is that uh, like a person you know? We both know him. We don't like him. And refiners, I'm afraid the old analog clock on the wall is telling us it's time to end for the day. We leave with Helly still in the elevator. Mark is trying to get to her before Grainer does, but it looks like he's too late. We'll pick this up next time as Helly is exiting the elevator in part two of Half Loop. For now, please shut down your workstations and you can exit by the elevator. Remember, no written code of any kind is allowed to leave the severed floor. It will set off the code sensors. As usual, please make sure to stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.